Hi, everyone. This Quarium episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, let's dive into this thought-provoking topic. I think there's this thought that when we enter the room, we're going to go in there and somehow save the day, that we're going to say the right word and it's going to click with them and, and they'll be in recovery. But, you know, the reality of life is, is, is much different. And so I think the key to a good clinical encounter is really to, in all, all senses of it, to just meet the patient where they're at, to come in as agendaless as possible, to see where they are in their health timeline. And by being able to just sit there with them, no matter where they are, I think that gives them the most opportunity to then uh, change and figure out what change means to them. This is Dr. Marty Fried, Dr. Laura Colby, and Dr. Alexis Vian. This is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we're discussing stigma in the treatment of patients with substance use disorders. Our goal for this episode is to get more comfortable with discussing substance use disorders with our patients in the hospital. Alexis, welcome back. Our listeners will remember Dr. Alexis Vienne from our Five Pearls on inpatient pain management. And on this episode, we're welcoming a new producer to the Five Pearls family, right, Alexis? Yes, so great to be back, Marty. I'm also super excited to introduce Dr. Lara Colby, also a hospitalist at Cornell and current fellow in medical ethics. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me, Alexis and Marty. Who you heard in the opener was my mentor, Dr. Jonathan Avery, Director of Addiction Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. The trap that I fall into is that if the patient doesn't leave that encounter ready to change their life, then I feel like a complete failure. But Dr. Avery suggests that we need to let our patients figure out what change means to them. Either way, I am so looking forward to this episode. Let's get started with some questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the questions. Wait a minute, Marty, am I supposed to take Shreya's wine? You are. You got this, Alexis. I know you can do it. All right. Remember that the more you test yourself, the deeper the learning gains. Pearl one, starting the conversation. How do we promote positive conversations around substance use with our patients? Pearl two, the shared agenda. How do we bring curiosity and patient-centeredness to the addiction history? Pearl three, exploring patient goals. How useful is the stages of change framework, and how can we encourage our patients to set goals for healthy behaviors around drug use? Pearl four, Patients whose goal includes reducing drug use. What can we do for the patients whose goals are to stop using drugs? Pearl 5. Reducing harm in opioid use. How can we help patients who continue to use drugs? So let's start this episode by bringing ourselves back to the last time we got the sign out of a hospitalized patient with either a diagnosed or suspected substance use disorder. You may or may not have heard other providers talk about a history of quote-unquote AMAing, or maybe you were told about a positive urine drug screen. But whatever it was, you acknowledged early on that this patient's medical issues are a complication of addiction. So when I'm on inpatient service and I get a sign out like this, my heart sinks a little bit. 
I mean, it's easier for me often to focus on the infection and not address the drug use at all. But what I'm learning is that those feelings are often a result of the stigma around substance use and probably reflect more about our treatment of the patient and not vice versa. My expectation is that that person may have had traumatizing experiences in healthcare settings in the past. Unfortunately, the way that we structure our healthcare system, bias, discrimination, stigma, policies often have really harmed people in the past. For many people, their experience with healthcare providers hasn't been one of being treated well or being treated kindly, certainly not when it comes to talking about drug use. Amen to that. That was the amazing Dr. Sarah Wakeman, who is the medical director for the Mass General Substance Use Disorders Initiative and the program director for their Addiction Medicine Fellowship. One rookie move is going in there with great intentions, but focusing on the conversation that we want to have instead of going in there and being open to the immediate needs of the patient. Yeah, for sure. And another thing to avoid is lumping withdrawal and substance use disorder together. One pearl here is to separate these issues in the assessment and plan. This forces us to think about withdrawal as one issue that we are going to specifically address early in the admission, and then separately our patient's broader substance use disorder that deserves its own attention. Many times people come in and they're experiencing withdrawal from opioids or other substances, and that pain and suffering is intense and um, needs to be addressed immediately. And it's really unfair to the person and also totally unsuccessful from a clinical standpoint to try to take an hour-long history or, you know, dive into someone's, you know, past substance use disorder history when they are physically suffering and feel like they're going to die from acute withdrawals. But I think one mistake I often see is people come in, sit down and have, you know, an hour-long intake or interview or consultation they want to get through. And meanwhile, this person, you know, feels the worst they've ever felt in the bed in front of you. And so not only will they not be able to engage in an interview, but also think about what message that sends to the person that sort of your priorities as a provider to get to the questions you need to ask are more important than their sort of suffering in that moment. Yeah, if we've recognized signs that might indicate opioid withdrawal, dilated pupils, chills, goosebumps, diarrhea, anxiety, we should ask about that and treat it. But what if our patient is not obviously in withdrawal? A lot of times it feels strange raising the subject of junkies with patients We don't want to marginalize our patients, but we also want to acknowledge and help patients with this disease. Right. This can definitely feel awkward, so Dr. Avery suggests that we add it to the list of things we're going to cover in the admission. So, for example, you might say, we'd like to give you antibiotics for the infection in your blood. We also noticed that you had fentanyl in your urine, and if it's okay, I'd like to discuss drug use with you. In that way, you medicalize it, I think. You make it like any of the other things on the list that you're asking them. It doesn't have this special scary status, but rather is just a part of the doctor-patient interaction that you're curious about and that um, that having those answers and having that teamwork around will, will make for a better outcome. In my practice, I do just jump in there, but if I sense discomfort, I'll ask if it's okay for me to keep going with questions. And another thing that probably seems obvious but makes a big difference is using person-first language. Yeah, referring to our patients as someone with a heroin use disorder rather than a heroin abuser has actually been shown to correlate with providers offering treatment for the disorder instead of judgment and blame. Yeah, absolutely. There are several studies to back Laura up. One of my favorites surveyed 500 mental health providers after reading two versions of the same clinical vignette. One version, a patient was described as a substance abuser, and the other version of the vignette described them as having a substance use disorder. The survey respondents were our colleagues. These were doctors, social workers, psychologists. 
And those who read about the substance abuser were substantially more likely to blame the individual for their medical issues, they were less likely to offer treatment, they were more likely to recommend punishment, and they were more likely to predict violent behaviors from the vignette character. And the last part of the Words Matter section worth mentioning is how we refer to urine drug screens. Often you'll hear words like clean or dirty when healthcare workers talk about a sample with drugs present or absent, but there are some obvious problems with us framing patients' bodies or bodily products that way. So to talk about someone who's been clean for X amount of time, meaning they're either in remission or they haven't been using um, whatever problematic substance they're referring to. And that really implies that someone who's actively using drugs is dirty. Um, And so that, of course, has terrible negative connotations. And you know, I often think of a colleague who um, is a person in long-term recovery who is applying for a job as a recovery coach. And, and during an interview, the interviewing team asked him how long he'd been clean for. And his response was that he'd been bathing since he was born. So he'd been clean his whole life, but he'd been recovery for five or 10 years. And um, so that was a lovely reminder of just what is it we're saying with our words when we're talking about clean and dirty when it comes to a health condition. Such a great reminder about pitfalls to avoid. All right, Laura, I want to summarize this first, Pearl. Happy to. First, ask yourself before each patient encounter with someone who uses drugs what they've been through in the past. Remind yourself that they've likely been stigmatized in the past by healthcare workers. Try to earn their trust in the first few encounters. For example, treating withdrawal and asking permission to discuss are both great strategies to break the ice. And don't forget to refer to patients as people and not their disease, which includes referring to urine drug screens as positive, not clean or dirty. So at this point, with their permission, we've started the conversation about our patient's drug use. The purpose of the next two pearls is to discuss important elements of the addiction history, and then we're going to offer some strategies for goal setting in patients with addiction. During the history-taking portion, as you ask about what drugs our patients use and how they use them, sometimes it's helpful to remember that not all people who use drugs have a substance use disorder. I think that's something we don't talk a lot about. We sort of over-anchor on problematic, chaotic substance use and substance use disorder in the healthcare setting. And that's important because by the time people are ending up in the hospital, you know, there is a higher prevalence of folks who have substance use disorder and we want to identify and treat it. But it's also really important to acknowledge that there is a spectrum of drug use and that most people who use drugs don't ever meet criteria for a substance use disorder. We should actively listen for information to make the diagnosis of a substance use disorder. This comes down to things like, does their use cause them distress in different areas of their life, including socially, interpersonally? Are they having physical or psychological problems due to their use? So we encourage you to be open to the idea that just because a patient is using drugs and is in the hospital, it doesn't necessarily mean that they engage in problematic use. Many times, yes, but definitely not always. I think of it almost less about how much information you're getting as the sort of stage and and the way you're approaching them that sort of creates an environment where you can get all the history items that you want. Um, And so I'm often thinking more about the the environment than necessarily all the details. I'll ask about their drug use, like what drugs are they using, how much in route of administration, inhalation, intranasal, or intravenous use. This can be helpful when thinking about what treatments or risk reduction you might offer later on. Once you understand what and how your patient is using, you can explore more of their substance use narrative. Start with questions like, when did you start using? And did it ever change from a pastime to a problem? If so, what made you realize that? 
This kind of speaks to the ways drugs have caused them harm and could help confirm a diagnosis of substance use disorder if present. Then I ask about treatment history and use questions like, have you had any addiction treatment in the past? This includes behavioral treatment and medication treatment. Right. It's important to know if they've tried any medications for addiction before and if they've had a good experience with it or if they've been to any kind of outpatient program that they didn't like. I've definitely made the mistake of launching into a discussion about Suboxone and the patient already knew a lot about it and really wanted to try something else. And a motivational interview-inspired way to ask that might be to inquire about the longest they have gone without using and how they were able to make it so long. Ooh, I love that. So focus on their successes and build from there. Nice. The whole time we're listening for clues to what's important to this person. Do certain relationships keep coming up, like maybe their children? Do they value their independence and want to avoid long stays at nursing facilities? Or maybe they're just tired of spending too much money on drugs. Right, because those little nuggets will be helpful in the next pearls when we get concrete about treatment. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter, the patient's agenda that should guide what we offer as providers and not the other way around. This is so important it's our next pearl. But first, let's summarize pearl two. Yeah, so the initial evaluation or addiction history is a detailed look at your patient's substance use story, remembering that not all patients who use drugs will automatically have a substance use disorder. As you're listening, pay attention to how their use affected different parts of their lives. Ask about past successes that allowed healthy changes, listening for clues to what's important to them, now and in the future. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. The only thing that matters is if they see their drug use as somehow getting in the way of a goal they have for themselves or their quality of life. And, and, and therefore, it's something that they would like to make changes to. And then my role is to really partner with them on reaching whatever the goal that they've defined is and offering you know what I know from my scientific background about what's effective to help them get there. So it's really kind of a patient-directed and patient-centered approach. When I hear the patient's goal is the only thing that matters, that makes me a little uneasy. Like, yeah, helping patients meet their goals is obviously important, but what if they don't want to reduce their drug use? Isn't that the whole point of treatment? Yeah, I agree. Early in medical school, we're taught about the trans-theoretical model, right? That's the stages of change model. The old pre-contemplative to contemplative to yada, yada, yada. 
Right. In that old stages of change framework, the stages are arranged in these linear buckets, and we can supposedly map out exactly where a patient is from pre-contemplation to contemplation to preparation, action, maintenance. It sure does sound neat and tidy, but I'm not so sure life is that simple. It acts as if it's this static model that people move through these steps in a sort of sequential way. When in reality, over the course of any given day or hours or minutes, people can move between bunches of different stages in terms of what what their sort of readiness for change is. And think about any tough change you ever wanted to make in your life. You know, if you're thinking about, I don't know, starting to exercise and you haven't before, you know, in one moment you may be planning and then, you know, one hour later you may be pre-contemplative because you're tired and you have an exam and it's not the right time. This is much truer to what I actually experience. Part of the patient wants to change their use and part of them doesn't. I feel this all the time. Part of me wants to exercise on a given day and part of me doesn't. It's also hard to hear the patient's agenda when I'm thinking about mapping the patient to a certain stage of change and how I can move them to the next stage in the cycle. When I do that, my agenda becomes too much of the focus. I think it's that when it gets sort of oversimplified into this very black and white kind of static model and when it gets used as a way to either disengage the provider or sort of put the blame back on the patient, that those kind of rigid buckets are problematic. So it can be helpful when we hear a patient say things like, I don't see why my use is a big deal. To note that this might not be the day that your patient wants to start using buprenorphine, for example. But if we stop there and label the patient as pre-contemplative, we may be tempted to say there's nothing we can do for them. Exactly. And a totally valid patient goal that's not stopping using might be to, I don't know, avoid dying from overdose or avoid reincarceration or not get HIV. We're going to get into the specifics about how to offer harm reduction services later. But the point here is that we should probably reconsider the blanket use of stages of change model as it relates to substance use disorders. We should also accept that sometimes it's hard to elicit goals from our patients. Often I'll ask in a straightforward way towards the end of their substance use history, what is important to you moving forward? Or even more concretely, what are your goals in the next year? Again, the major reason why we're getting patients to identify these goals is to align our treatment recommendations to these goals. We'll go into more detail in the next pearls, but let's summarize this section, Marty. Perfect. So the trans-theoretical model can be misused to assume that people move in this linear path from pre-contemplative to action, which is not true for many patients. And often it's used as a way to disengage from helping our patients with addiction if we find that they aren't ready to reduce their drug use at any given moment. Instead, we should try to identify our patients' goals and priorities, which may or may not involve reducing drug use. As we'll cover in the rest of the episode, there are many ways to help our patient regardless of how much or how little they want to stop using. In these next two pearls, we're going to consider two different scenarios. First, if the patient sees their substance use as causing them problems and wants to stop using. And second, if the patient is less interested in reducing their drug use. Of course, in real life, often people fit into a little of column A, a little of column B. Perfect. So let's start with the patient whose goal is to stop using altogether. 
When someone's motivated to change their behaviors, we move as fast as possible. We get the medication started. And I think where we are tempted sometimes to still say, oh, don't you know what you're doing? You're destroying your liver and your kidney and your family and being that doctor and information dumping. Uh, but we just want to, if we, that's one principle motivational interviewing. They want to do the health behavior that's positive. We cheerlead them. We get them there. So <laughs> that's the spirit of it. Love that. If we see momentum in our patients, we should run with it. No need to backtrack about why this decision is so important. Let's be honest, they already know this. Okay, so we're moving forward towards linking to treatment. For severe opioid use disorder, this is really about medications. And so we think the treatment of opioid use disorder also makes it different than all those substance use disorders and that we think you need to be on medications, um, buprenorphine, methadone, long-acting injectable naltrexone or Vivitrol. And so for the patient in the hospital that's motivated to address their opiate use disorder, this is a real opportunity to initiate these medications. But the great thing is no matter what degree of intensity of treatment they want to do, if they have buprenorphine on board, that's really winning the game because it's protecting against overdoses and improving all sorts of outcomes. And so that's really the goal for the, for the motivated patient. It's worth noting that we used to refer to buprenorphine, methadone, and long-acting injectable naltrexone as MAT, or medication-assisted therapy. But there's a growing push to reconsider that phrase. The term medication-assisted therapy implies that these life-saving medications are helping some other component of treatment, like maybe counseling or participation in NA meetings. But that interpretation can actually be harmful. There's never been a single study that's shown that requiring 12-step participation improves outcomes for people on medication treatment, or that adding counseling to primary care-delivered medication management alone improves outcomes. Exactly. Medications are the cornerstone of treatment. So we're moving away from the term MAT, and instead we use MOUD, or Medications for Opioid Use Disorder. For our hospitalized patients, multiple studies and meta-analyses have shown that in-hospital buprenorphine has better outcomes than detox, in terms of both ongoing engagement with MOUD and reducing relapse rates post-hospitalization. Dr. Wakeman also brings up two other categories of addiction treatment we should offer to our patients on top of MOUD, psychosocial treatment and recovery support. The other components of treatment, so medication is the most effective. It should be available and readily offered to patients whether or not they are interested in engaging in other types of care. Psychosocial treatment, which is what we think of sort of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, and motivational enhancement therapy, contingency management um, also should be made available, but people should not not have the option for medication, even if they're not either able to or interested in engaging in psychosocial treatment. The other kind of component that we often think about is, is sort of a broad bucket of, of what we call recovery supports. So these are not formal treatment, but they can be incredibly helpful to, to patients as they're navigating, you know, early treatment and engaging in care and really building up sort of the fabric of support in their lives and connecting with people who have shared lived experience. The most common recovery supports are mutual support groups like 12-step organizations. You've heard about these. These are AA and NA. Something you might want to warn your patients about is that nonspecific spirituality is actually part of the Narcotics Anonymous or the Alcohol Anonymous program. So if your patient is not comfortable discussing a higher power, but might be interested in a support group, you could steer them toward a secular group like Smart Recovery. Also, there is an unfortunate anti-medication bias in some of these support organizations, the old quote-unquote replacing one addiction for another fallacy. So I really encourage patients to try out several groups until they find one that's a good fit. 
For my patients who are a little more web savvy, I point them towards a website called shatterproof.org that has a great patient-centered way of explaining different types of treatment. They also have a lot of amazing information about how to get involved in advocacy around substance use, so we'll link this in the show notes. All right, let's summarize this section. Alexis, you're up. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, this one's easy. Medications work. Start them early in the hospital for patients who are interested in stopping or reducing their substance use, and make sure they have a place to continue getting it on discharge. Therapy and recovery support are nice adjuncts for those patients who are interested, but we shouldn't withhold medications if patients are ambivalent about participating in those programs. I used to prefer conversations with patients super motivated to stop their drug use, but now I found talking with patients who aren't quite sure they're open to change just as rewarding. Yeah, in the past, I might have just labeled these patients pre-contemplative and moved on, but one of my biggest takeaways in preparing this episode is that if my patients still want to use, I still have a lot to offer. So it's not time to end the conversation. In fact, there's a lot of ground we can cover. So regardless of what a person's goals are related to their drug use, every single person, including people who continue to use drugs, deserve the best possible health care. People who use drugs have not forfeited their human rights, including their right to health care. And I think there can sometimes be some cognitive dissonance for providers or nurses caring for someone who is actively injecting drugs or actively using drugs in that the provider often thinks, well, they're doing this thing that I perceive to be harmful to their health, and so therefore they must not care about their health. And that's simply not true. People who use drugs care about their health, they want good health care, and irrespective of where they are on the continuum of making changes to their drug use. Oh my goodness, what a wake-up call. I mean, how many of us have heard comments by our colleagues that just by providing basic health care to patients who use drugs that we are quote-unquote supporting or rewarding their behavior? So I think the first step when patients don't fall in line with us is just to accept where they're at and affirm that regardless of current or future drug use, we're still here to help. I might say something like, I want you to be as safe as possible when you're using. Do you have a naloxone kit or fentanyl test strips? I'll ask patients where they're getting their needles or their injection equipment. I actually separate out the injection drug use part and in part just to remind myself to be rigorous about thinking about the the steps involved in injection drug use. I think that's a part we often don't talk enough about with patients and really understanding what are their injection practices, walking through, you know, where do they get their injection equipment? Do they share or reuse any components of their equipment and not just syringes, but also thinking about their cooker, cottons, you know, what type of water do they use? Are they washing their hands before they inject? Are they cleaning their skin before they inject? Do they go to a syringe service program or do they go to a pharmacy to get their injection equipment? If they're injecting solids like cocaine, what are they using to dissolve it? So because crack is a basic substance, people need to use an acid to turn it into a liquid. And if someone is going to a syringe service program, they may be able to access vitamin C powder, which is what's recommended. But oftentimes people are using things like lemon juice or vinegar, both of which can have associated uh, medical risks. Using lemon juice to dissolve drugs prior to injection has been associated with candidemia and fungal endocarditis. And vinegar is really caustic to veins. So on top of everything else about opioid use itself, we can do a ton of harm reduction by providing patients with non-judgmental guidance about avoiding these kinds of illnesses and injuries. Love it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. We should definitely normalize discussing safe injection practices 
and providing naloxone early and often. Fentanyl test strips are becoming widely available to detect the presence of fentanyl in unregulated drugs. And these really allow our patients just to be more informed about the drugs that they are using. Harmreduction.org has tons of resources about helping our patients stay safe while using. And there are websites that can locate needle exchanges throughout the U.S. There are many options to help keep our patients safe while using drugs. Like not using a loan so someone could call EMS if there were an accidental overdose. Of course, there is a lot of work to do in terms of reframing addiction as a medical problem, not a criminal one. We spend a lot of time in medicine talking about the harms of drug use, but endocarditis, like many conditions, is actually a harm of drug policy. It's not a harm of drug use. So heroin doesn't give you endocarditis. methamphetamine or cocaine don't give you endocarditis. The thing that causes endocarditis is the fact that we have created a system where we criminalize and punish and push into the shadows people who inject drugs. And the thing that causes endocarditis is because people don't have access to sterile injection equipment, because we don't have supervised consumption sites, because people are rushing and using in unsupervised and public settings where they're at risk of getting arrested or criminalized. Couldn't agree with Dr. Waveman more. So to summarize Pearl 5, if your patient would rather set goals around safe drug use instead of reducing it, you can provide a ton of help. Ask about how patients are acquiring their injection equipment, and offer resources like Narcan kits and fentanyl test strips. You can check out our show notes to learn about how patients in your part of the world can acquire clean needles and share that with your patients. They are much more likely to engage in care if we are willing to meet them where they're at. So come ready to talk about safe drug use if that's what's most important to your patients. All right, we covered a ton of ground in this quick episode. Let's review the main points from each of these pearls. In the first pearl, we talked about starting the conversation. It's good to remember that the healthcare system often stigmatizes people who use drugs. So if you find yourself caring for someone with addiction, try to earn their trust early. Ask permission to address their substance use and be sure to treat withdrawal and pain if they are experiencing it. In the second pearl, we talked about the shared agenda. Remember to meet patients where they're at and avoid assuming that all patients want to stop using immediately. As you learn about their past and current substance use, also look for risk factors for comorbid illnesses like HIV and Hep C, as well as look for opportunities to reduce overdose risk. The third pearl was all about exploring patient goals. Use that addiction history to formulate some patient-centered goals that may or may not include sobriety. Remember that the stages of change model has some pretty major shortfalls, and not everyone moves through substance use in this linear path from pre-contemplation straight through action. In the fourth pearl, we talked about the patient whose goal includes reducing drug use. If they're interested in stopping, great, that's awesome. Start the medications for opiate use disorder while they are inpatient and try to link to an outpatient provider who can continue the treatment. The best MOUD option is the one that the patient agrees to and the one that you can coordinate follow-up care. And finally, in the fifth pearl, we talked about reducing harm in opiate use. Don't be fooled into thinking that you're a failure if your patient isn't interested in stopping or even reducing drug use immediately after meeting them. But also don't give up there either. Try to reduce harm by providing the nasal naloxone overdose rescue kits and discuss safe injecting to avoid infectious complications of their addiction. And that is a wrap for today. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. 
If you have a case you'd like to bring on air, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Huge thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Jessica Taylor from Boston University School of Medicine and Dr. Peggy Williams from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Thank you to Doc Shbadia for the audio editing and Dr. Cabo Vang for the accompanying infographic. Remember that opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. That is it for this episode. We look forward to seeing y'all out there. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.